0: Good morning and welcome to Music Cultures Wednesday, I believe it's the 4th of um, November already and we have to start with today's exciting announcements which include that I think we've finally located all of the video examples that were lost over the weekend, and they're now making their way between the various libraries concerned. And everybody now seems to know what we're supposed to do with them, although I'm not going to rely on that. I'm going to be in constant touch with the libraries from now on. But we've been set back at least a week by just the delay in getting these videos to the libraries where they're supposed to be. Every time we get them to one library, somebody there sends them over to the wrong library, and the people in the wrong library send them somewhere else. And so we're finally catching up with them, I think. We will get the videos available. There are now four out of the first six videos on reserve downstairs at Music Library Listening Center, two floors below this classroom. These are Physical DVDs, Music Library Listening Center, Floor G of this building. And these are all ones that we have streaming online examples for. Uh, There are six more DVDs currently at Odegaard undergrad library where you can't listen to them or watch them because they're being processed for streaming online video. They should have been online a week ago, and they will be online hopefully in the next day or two, which brings us to the big announcement. Because of all of these delays, we are going to have the midterm on Wednesday of next week. Not Monday and not even Tuesday, but Wednesday of next week, yeah. And I see a couple of people who can't do it on Wednesday, right? There's
1: no
0: class on the Oh, is it a holiday? Yeah. Okay. That means we'll have to make it Friday. Thank you. I'm glad somebody is aware of what the, what the calendar is doing these days because I haven't had time to look at one now for I don't know how long. Friday of next week. I don't even know what date that is. Does anyone actually have a calendar they can look at and see? 13th. Sorry. 13th? Friday the 13th. Hey, alright. And Professor Confucius's late student will rise up out of his grave and come back for the midterm. Friday the 13th, good. That's a very appropriate time for our midterm, given all the trouble that we're having. Oh, did I mention that our last two weeks of podcasts have now disappeared from the internet? If you hadn't heard them, sorry, you missed them, but I'm going to try to get them back. I don't know... If this is also a UW problem, or if it's a problem with Apple computer, or what, but um, I'm going to to try to get to get them back as quickly as possible. I don't know where they went. I just looked this morning before class uh, to see see if the latest one that I put up last night was there, and the whole two weeks were gone. So um, don't wait to listen to or view online or uh, uh, look at anything that you need, because it might not be there tomorrow. I have never seen this place in such a mess before. And I know for you, Dub, a lot of it has to do with all of the staff positions and all of the teaching assistantships and so on that they eliminated because of budget problems. There just aren't enough people trying to do too much work. and. So a lot of stuff is getting shuffled and, um, and screwed up. But we will adjust as best we can. One thing that you do know is we can't move the final to a later date, because final is final, and that's it. So one way or another, we will have the final when it's scheduled to be, during final exam week on Monday at... Um, uh, some horrible time, 8 o'clock in the morning or something. I'm sorry, I, I, I don't have the page in, fr- in front of me. It's an early time, and we will all drag ourselves out of our beds or out of our graves, as the situation might uh, demand, and have the final, exactly when it is, come All our high water, or disappearing podcasts or disappearing videos. So midterm then, next Wednesday. Gee, any other disasters that I should talk about? Well, maybe we better get on with Japanese music before that disappears too. We've listened through examples number one, two, and three. Now we have example four on CD2 handout, and this is an example of Japanese Buddhist music. And this is a piece called The Song of the Four Wisdoms, Shichibongo or Shichibunga no song. Uh, uh, literally, it means the Sanskrit song of the three wisdoms because it's sung in Sanskrit, in the Indian language, by uh, Reverend Arai Kojun. Shomyo means a special kind of Buddhist chant. Literally, the name means shining voice. And it's a Japanese translation of a Sanskrit name, which means the science of sound. So this is the kind of music that is being sung in example number four. And the specific example that's being sung is Chichibongo, or Song of Four Wisdoms. This is a song that belongs to a very special kind of Buddhism. The Buddhism that spread out of India about 2000 years ago, there's India, there's Southeast Asia, there's China, there's Korea, etc., and Japan is over here. The Buddhism that spread out of India went in waves. The first wave being mostly to the south and east. And that wave became known as Theravada Buddhism. Theravada literally means the teachings of the elders. The second wave of Buddhist expansion out of India mainly followed the Silk Road up around through Central Asia, down into China up to Korea and over to Japan and also down into Vietnam and that second wave of Buddhism was called Mahayana which literally means the great vehicle vehicle you know like a car something to carry you from one place to another actually the kind of vehicles that were in use at this time about 2000 years ago were um, mainly Horse, Horses, bullock, carts, um, and boats of one kind or another, means of transportation. But this is what the Buddhists of this group called their, um, their form of Buddhism. They conceived of it as a means of transportation from a world of suffering into a world of happiness. And they called it the great vehicle because they said it had room to carry many more people than this form of Buddhism. It was more open to the general public. It was a more popular and more democratic form of Buddhism, at least according to the members of this group. And that was the kind of Buddhism that spread around through Central Asia and into China, Korea, Japan, and Vietnam, Mahayana Buddhism. Then there was a third kind a third wave of Buddhism called Vajrayana. And that's very hard to translate. You see it's yana, like Mahayana, meaning it's also a vehicle. Vajra means thunderbolt, that is something extremely powerful, or diamond, something extremely pure and, and hard to destroy. Um, or a, uh, a kind of an invisible essence that lies at the heart of all being and at the hearts of all living beings that can transform you from someone with a uh, with a mortal life that will end in death to a kind of an immortal life that will end in death. A new kind of existence. Or, as a Vajrayana Buddhist who once um, spoke in this class said, when someone asked, asked, well, what does Vajra mean? He talked for 15 minutes and he said, but really the only way to explain it is, and he started to dance. And he danced for a half hour. And so there, that's Vajra. The Vajra vehicle of Buddhism we usually call tantric in English because it's based on written texts that are called Tantra, but it's maybe more important for this class to realize that Vajrayana Buddhism is the form of Buddhism with the most developed forms of music and dance. Of all of these three waves of Buddhism, the Theravada has the most restricted, the most deliberately streamlined music and dance that doesn't have a whole lot of variety and for instance Theravada monks do not play musical instruments but you remember when we heard the Mahayana nuns in Chinese Buddhism they were playing musical instruments drums and gongs um, and other idiophones and membranophones and so that's the difference between them they have instrumental music which the Theravada monks don't generally play and then the Vajrayana practitioners of Buddhism again uh, practice more and more elaborate forms of Buddhism with more kinds of instruments, more kinds of vocal music and so on. So Vajrayana Buddhism went north to Nepal and Tibet from Tibet on up into Mongolia and Siberia. Um, So this is all the third wave, Vajrayana Buddhism. It did spread into parts of Central Asia where it was later um, displaced by the expansion of Islam. And it spread eastward and pretty much passed through China without taking very deep root there and disappeared, um, went to Korea but went especially to Japan. So in Japan you have both two and three, that is Mahayana and Vajrayana Buddhism. And this kind of singing, the Shomyo singing belongs to number three, the Vajrayana or Tantric Buddhist (coughs) tradition. And it is an unusually Elaborate kind of singing. Song of the Four Wisdoms is about four Buddhas who embody four different kinds of wisdom. And you remember that when we had the chant, uh, chanting the names of the medicine Buddha, I explained that there are many different Buddhas who each embody or exemplify different good qualities, different virtues of one kind or another. So the four wisdoms are actually conceived of, thought of, and sung to as a configuration of four Buddhas of wisdom. This is wisdom one, wisdom type two, wisdom number three, and wisdom number four. All of those together make up a complete set of wisdoms, and there is another another Buddha in the center here, who represents perfect wisdom. All of the others put together, and so, like perhaps the electrons um, spinning around the nucleus of an atom, or the planets um, around the sun, this planetary array of Buddhas representing four different wisdoms are all emanations, they're all projections of different aspects of the one in the center. So this is an all-in-one kind of a situation. In tantric Buddhism, you call this a mandala, a planetary circle of figures representing a related set of good qualities or categories or powers or things that are desired or needed, and this is a mandala the song of the four wisdoms then is done as a vocalization of a visualization the imagination of these four Buddhas, the four qualities that they represent of four wisdoms with perfect wisdom at the center and so the song is a meditation that has a visual aspect as well as a musical aspect. And many of these musical meditations in Vajrayana or Tantric Buddhism also can take the form of a dance. And that's what my friend meant when he came in and danced for the class to show what Vajra was all about. Because this was a part of the meditation to experience the, um, the meditative presence of these good qualities and the Buddha's representing them through one's own body and voice and mind. That's what the Song of the Four Wisdoms is about. Now if we turn the page, on page two, you see the traditional Japanese Buddhist notation for the Song of the Four Wisdoms. Ah, I see some of you didn't print this out and bring your hand out. Too bad, I told you you should. Well, you'll have to see it when you go home and it'll be on your CD. But it's going to soon, actually, it is already, I think, available on streaming video, but I, I could be wrong about that. So don't rely on it right now. It will be there soon if it isn't there already. Song of the Four Wisdoms in Japanese notation. Now, what does this mean? These are three pages. Page one in the upper right. Page two in the upper left. Page three down below here. When reading traditional Japanese characters, just like Chinese, characters, you read from top to bottom, starting on the right. So you read down to the bottom of this column, and then, whoops, actually these three columns here go together, so you skip over to this one, number four, and read that one down to the bottom. You continue up here, read that one, over here, read that one. Down here, read that one. And down here, read that one to the end of the page. Now, the column on the right in each case is the words of the song. The words are written in Chinese slash Japanese characters. But if you read ordinary Chinese or Japanese characters, and you look at this, it's not going to make any sense because this is not Japanese writing or, chi- or Chinese. It's not um, Japanese or Chinese being written in these characters the way that you normally would use them in Japan or China. This is the Indian Sanskrit language, and Sanskrit in India is an alphabetic language. You have characters representing the sounds of A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and so forth and so on. Chinese and Japanese writing is not alphabetic, not these traditional characters on the right here. It is a symbolic writing where each character stands for an idea rather than a sound. And that's why you can give the same written sentence to a reader of Chinese or Japanese, say, and, the, and they can often understand it, but if you ask them to read it out loud, it will sound completely different because they're two different languages. The characters stand for the idea, not the sound of the language. They stand for the meaning <coughs> of the word. But Sanskrit is written with characters representing sounds. So the Japanese Buddhists who translated these Sanskrit texts and the Sanskrit songs into uh, something for Japanese Buddhists to be able to follow. If they wanted to show what to sing in Sanskrit, they had to invent a special form of, of, of these characters. Actually, it was Chinese Buddhists who started this practice, and so they invented a form of Chinese characters called the Siddham script, which used Chinese characters to represent sounds, not ideas. And so these characters here look like Chinese or Japanese characters that represent ideas, but they don't. And they don't make any sense if you tried to read them that way. What they do is they represent sounds. And so I've put the, English transliteration of those sounds under each of those characters. If you read down the line here on the very first column on the upper right, Om Ban Zara Sato Ban. That's pretty easy. And it goes on like that in the second line, in the third, fourth, fifth, and that short sixth line, to the um, end of the song text. And I put the text down below in English word order so you can see OM, pronounced OM, Vajra, that's in Sanskrit, pronounced Banzara, the way that Japanese monks pronounce Sanskrit Vajra, Sattva, Sato ban, Sato ban is up here. Um, Sato ban, ban right here. (coughs) The second line Banzara Ratanom, Adotaram, Banzara Taramak, Kayatai, Banzara Karamakaro, Hamba. Those are Japanese pronunciations of the Sanskrit words om vajra sangraha, vajra ratna manutaram, vajra dharma gayana, vajra kamakaro bhava. What? It isn't very clear? Sure, it is. Sanskrit <coughs> is a very easy language to. Read, if you know the letters, and that's why I used English letters here. Just try this once. Om. Hey, good. All right. Let's try a little harder one. Vajra. Vajra. Satva. Sangraha. Sangraha. Oh, nice. Okay. Now, but let's do it in the Japanese pronunciation. Om. Om. Banzara. Satoban Sato Sanyaraka, sorry, Sangaraka Banzara Rata-nom. Ratanom Adotaram Banzara Tarama Kayatai Banzara Kyarama Karo. Hamba. Hamba. Nice. Wow, not only can you guys read Sanskrit, you can read Sanskrit with a Japanese accent. Not bad. Go tell all your friends that you've acquired this new skill. Now, oh, I just about forgot. You know, it's not just the words here, but there's also music. And if you look to the Left of this column, what do you have? You have a line that goes down at an angle, goes straight over, then down. You have another one that just goes down like this. How can you tell actually which way these lines are pointing? Let's take a look. Okay, here's the first one up here to the left of Ohm, and I have to make it bigger so you can see it. There's a little circle like that, and the line comes like that. Now, the circle just shows you where to start. So that's where you start reading the line. And that's how you know that the line is pointing that way rather than that way. Because the starting point is up, upper right, and it goes down to lower left. But you get to this corner, and you have to take a right because you keep moving away from the starting point. So at this point you're going from right to left. And then you take a left here, a half left I guess, and you go down there. Sorry for the squiggle. That's not in the notation. It's in my shaky handwriting. But you take that and follow it down there. So you've got three. Different turns. The next one is simpler. It's just like that. So you know that you start up at the circle and you just go that way. Um, The third one is the same. The fourth one is the same. The fifth one, let's see. and there, so you go that way, you go up, and you go this way. Now if you follow through enough of these, you would find out that you have (coughs) lines, some of them point straight down. Say my shoulder is the circle. Some of them point straight down. Some of them are like that at an angle. Some of them are like that, straight out. Some of them are like that at an angle. Some are like this, straight up. Some even go like that. What does that remind you of? Oh, yeah, that thing has hands that go (coughs) around like that. Oh, 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 what do those numbers do if you start if you're starting down here, let's say, what's your number? What's your next number? What's your next? They get bigger, don't they? Well, what do you think that means then in a musical notation? Because that's what this is. This is a musical notation. What could it mean? Value? Yeah, it gets higher. The numbers get bigger. The sound gets higher. So this is a musical notation that tells you, Pointing down. Ah, 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 What could be simpler? So, if you have one then that starts out. Let's see. Uh, and then it changes to ah, uh, and then ah, uh, like this. Uh, 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 uh. It's pretty easy, isn't it? How about this one? Ah, uh, oops. Ah, uh, ah. Uh. You know exactly the notes that you're supposed to sing. What a clear and logical form of musical notation that is. It's so nice. So then why do you have this third column here next to it that has curvy lines? Look at this one. And I asked my Japanese music teacher about this during our first lesson. I said, well, what what do you need these for? And he said, oh, that's the music. I said, well, I thought the one in the middle was the music with those nice straight lines. And he said, no, that's the theory. And the theory is very clear and logical. Theory has to be clear and logical. But music has to be nice and musical. And so you can't have it as clear and logical and simple as the ones in the middle that just show you what the theory is. Theory is very important because we have to think clearly. But the music is the most important because we have to make it sound musical. Now mm. well, that's interesting. So how do you make it sound musical? Okay, what you have to do is take this and turn it over so you can't see it because you have to see it here on the screen. And let's see, can we get that to turn on and stay on? Yes. Here are the full set of the, um, the arm of hands of the clock notation. You see this one is pointing over towards 3 o'clock, this one towards about 4, 30, 5 o'clock, this one to 6, uh, between 7 and 8, 9, between 10 and 11, 12, between 1 and 2, 3, between 4 and 5, etc. So you can go up the scale all the way up to here, or down the scale all the way down to there. Theoretically, if you could sing that high or that low. And that's the theory. Nobody actually does that because you want to make it musical, and so you want to make it sound nice. Remember this one said That's the theory. But the music is And not only that, but this little thing here says that when you get to the top of that curving line, you have to close your mouth and hum. and finish it humming. Now this one is going to be just like the theory. Well, just about. Now this was a big curve upward. And then a little less of a curve upward. And then very, very small curves. And by the time you get to these, you couldn't even come close to playing this on the piano because these notes are so close together that they fall between the cracks on the keyboard and so you're singing what music theorists call microtones very small tones in this music and western musicians are always very surprised to hear this and some of them have asked these singers you know can you can you actually hear and sing those microtones and the uh, one singer said, well, you know, I've been doing this for 30 years, and I can hear it as clearly as you can hear a fifth or an octave. Um, yes, they do learn how to do this. So this is something, then, that uses more musical information and more notes, more scale um, of flexibility than Western music by a long way. So this is all very continuous and very subtle tone contours. Contours, that is, shapes of the tones that you make. And I've heard people from this tradition talk about American singing as all flat because the notes are all, I mean, they start the same and they stay the same and they end the same. They don't have that nice curvature and that nice flow and shaping that you have in this kind of tone-contour singing. And everything works together, not just the changes in pitch, but also even changes in vowel quality, and nasalization, and uh, loudness and accenting, swallow that weird, just the way you'd sing it in Western music, without any any sliding or smooth um, bending or flowing kind of a feeling. That's a very special kind of effect in this music and it's ordinary singing in the West. And I'll let you hear the end of that on your own, but here is your going away music for today. This is called the lark's flight, the flight of the skylark. And it represents a bird flying away in the sky. That is, this part down here does. And I'm going to rush him ahead to get to that point so you can hear it as you rush out the door. <laughs> Goodbye, see you.